Family, this is Davon Love, Director of Public Policy, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. I'm here with my big brother, my comrade, Heber Brown III, uh, Director of the Black Church Food Security Network, Pastor Pleasant Hope Baptist Church. Thank you for being with us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's get into it. So, um, you know, we had a conversation before, um, and, and one of the conversations we've had over many years is about the importance of sovereignty. And I think that's a concept that kind of in this moment of like social justice advocacy, I think it's something that I think is in some ways being left out of the conversation. And I think one of the reasons why I feel like your work is so important is because it really hones in on that importance of sovereignty and food being at the root of that. Um, so if you could first just talk a little bit about Black Church Food Security Network, talk a little bit about just some of the undergirding, you know, theory and practice underneath it with the emphasis on that on that sovereignty piece. Sure, sure. So uh, about 11 years ago now, while pastoring Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, I began to notice a pattern amongst members of our congregation where they were being hospitalized for diet-related issues. And, you know, frankly, um, I got tired of just praying and encouraging them in the hospital, them coming out, and then going back in over and over again. So once I figured out that it was diet-related issues that was going on, I eventually came to the place where I wanted to use some of the church land to grow our own food. Connected to the question of sovereignty though, I think it is important to note that that wasn't where, I, I didn't start thinking about growing food on our land. My first reaction was to develop a partnership with a local fresh food market mm -hmm. uh, in the neighborhood to try to pipeline their nutrient rich produce to our congregation. And when I went over to meet with them, I saw the price of the produce, I felt the vibe of the space, and I just didn't feel like that was the right, the right situation. I felt like it would place me and our congregation in a posture of subjugation to this white-led mm -hmm. fresh food market. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't having it. So mm -hmm. I left out without talking to anybody uh, there at that market. And then on the way back to the church that day, uh, as I tell, I tell people sometimes I had divine discontent bubbling up inside of me and really just angry like, you know, what we need is right here at the fingertips, but we can't grab it. Mm -hmm. It felt like a mirage. Mm -hmm. um, got back to the church and with all of that bubbling up inside of me, I saw a piece of the front yard of our congregation, of our church rather. Um, and I was like, well, fine, you know, if we can't get what they got, we're going to use what we have and we're going to grow what we need ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's where the idea came from for our church to start growing food. And then that opened my eyes to another dynamic I never thought about with respect to my church, which was that most of the members, particularly those who are like the backbone pillar members of the church, migrated to Baltimore from the South in the mid 20th century. So many of them were from the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Grew up on farms with 10 brothers and sisters like the family, mm -hmm. black families back in the day. Mm -hmm. Came North for jobs or whatever in the 50s, 60s or what have you. But they never forgot those agrarian impulses, instincts, and that drive to be closer to land. Mm -hmm. So when I come into the congregation and say, hey y'all, why don't we grow the food that we need for ourselves to help us to be as healthy as we can be, uh, but also put us in a posture where we don't have to beg anybody for what we need. It almost ignited, it felt like it ignited something in those members mm. who had moved to Baltimore years ago. Mm -hmm. And it felt like an idea that, you know, you know, they were really excited by because it was like, mm -hmm. oh, wow, I can get a piece mm -hmm. of my upbringing Mm -hmm. up here in the city after mm -hmm. all these years. So like getting in touch with their own memory, cultural, historical it memory. It really was, yeah, mm -hmm. like, a, a, yeah, and it was it was powerful to see that. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, it was important the ways in which that time and that garden, again, just knocked the shackles off my eyes in terms of what was right in front of me. And mm -hmm. what is not just present at Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, mm -hmm. but it's a dynamic that's present at many other churches. Mm. So fast forward a little bit, we start growing food on our land. 
I'm realizing it don't take a whole lot of land to grow a whole lot of food. Mm. That gardens, uh, if tended well, are naturally abundant. Like you'll get, you'll be giving away stuff. Mm. So we're growing on fifteen hundred square feet, maybe about the size of this room. We're growing twelve hundred pounds of produce every season. Mm. So I start seeing that take off. So I'm seeing the seniors energized. I'm seeing the land producing. I'm seeing different uses of our church kitchen. So now we gotta we gotta clean this stuff that we just grew. Mm-hmm. And now we got a multi-purpose room where we can kind of distribute that stuff we just grew. Mm. So it had me to start rethinking and reimagining what these spaces and what this land and what even what a configuration of a church could look like mm. around food sovereignty. And again, you know, just pulling that out a little bit more. Sovereignty just meant for us at that time that we would have a controlling stake in our own food environment. Mm-hmm. That's really what it is. It's mm-hmm. analyzing the power dynamics. We don't have power there at this at that store down the street. Mm-hmm. We'd have to, you know, really go with whatever they decided. We'd be depending on their benevolence. We'd mm-hmm. be depending on their generosity or their sense of charity mm-hmm. for us to get what many of us believe is a basic human right, which mm. is food. Mm-hmm. And so why subject ourselves ourselves to um, the indignity of begging for food, the indignity of that posture of, of asking even well-meaning, quote unquote, white folk for food, mm-hmm. like the indignity of that. Mm-hmm. Why even subject ourselves to that? If you got people who grew up in farms, you got some land at your church mm-hmm. and you meet every week and there's already the spirit of collective work and responsibility that's at the foundation of every congregation. Mm-hmm. So I analyzed all of that. I saw what was going on at our one church. And then my brain started thinking like, okay, mm-hmm. how can we systematize that? Then how can we scale deep into black church life and culture and bring the same type of energy to other churches? Because I recognized there was nothing necessarily unique about Pleasant Hope, it was we had we had the basic ingredients to do what we did, mm-hmm. and every other church that I knew of had the same basic ingredients. Mm-hmm. And so my organizer energy kicked in. I was like, all right, well, let's go around to other churches to do the same thing, and then systematize it, mm-hmm. connect this church with that church. Mm-hmm. What I saw was in ways that I rarely see in church spaces. Sweet potatoes, collard greens, broccoli, kale, tomatoes, etc., have a way of um, they don't have the same kind of it doesn't invite the same kind of doctrinal disputes, the same kind of theological mm-hmm. kind of battles uh, across denominations. AME, Baptist, AME, Zion. It didn't matter. Mm. It didn't matter what church I walked into. I started talking about collard greens, sweet potatoes. Everybody stopped smiling. Mm. Right. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I just saw the power of that, and I said, okay. Well, let's let's see what we can do to help more churches do it, connect us strategically together, because one church might have a whole lot of land, but not a whole lot of people. Mm. Another church got a commercial kitchen, but don't got, you know, don't have the money to really process what is grown. And so the vision then and the vision now is to continue to organize and bring churches together across the country now mm. under the umbrella of the Black Church Food Security Network mm-hmm. and really to do um, what I've been calling recently food system organizing, Mm -hmm. supply chain organizing. So really thinking, so taking our values around sovereignty, taking our values around a black nationalism, a pan-Africanism, looking at those values, overlaying that with the physical assets that churches already have in hand, Mm -hmm. overlaying that with what we already have in abundance within every congregation, the untapped genius of black people, Mm -hmm. of working class black people, Mm-hmm. organizes itself every single week and the highest for many churches uh, the highest uh, uh, ideal that we get people to grab hold to is some heaven after they die mm-hmm. and the most defined lanes for their genius for many of them mm. is the choir stand uh, the organ or the drum or usher board or the pulpit to preach mm. uh, but beyond that we don't have defined lanes for that genius to show up. Working class black people's genius that's gathered, that's gathered and organized every single week. Mm. The Black Church Food Security Network seeks to organize and better honor that genius in the direction of black food sovereignty. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, can you talk a little bit more? You mentioned the importance of systematizing uh, food distribution chains and supply chains. 
Can you just talk a little bit more about that? And particularly from the vantage point of this, right? Because one of the things that to me was really important about what you just laid out is taking like Pan-Africanism, Black nationalism, and then the operational side of what that means. Mm -hmm. So if you could talk about like this price, like this whole notion of what it means to systematize those distribution chains and why from a perspective of larger, if you're speaking to an audience of people that see themselves um, as having a revolutionary political bent, sure. um, speak to that audience why that conversation around the system, systematization of those food supply chains are essential to a politics that would be revolutionary. Absolutely. So I think, you know, you make me immediately think about Fred Hampton and one of the things he, he says, you know, you can read all the books you want to, all the theory is fine, but if you don't have practice, it don't mean, it don't mean a whole lot, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what I found myself, I spent most of my 20s doing, you know, reading and studying and the stuff that, you know, you have done, others have done. It's very, very important. Mm -hmm. And at different points along my journey, particularly when I started knocking on my, my, my third decade, um, <laughs> was that, you know, it was no longer fulfilling anymore to be in settings and spaces where I could cite mm -hmm. this fantastic <laughs> author mm -hmm. and have people kind of, you're like, oh, wow, that's deep. Snap, snap, snap. Mm -hmm. It got mm -hmm. to a place because I didn't see anything go beyond, like, beyond my ego, mm -hmm. beyond making me feel like the smart 20-something in the room. Mm -hmm. It didn't do much to really address and engage life beyond the conversation mm -hmm. or life beyond the panel or life beyond the round table. Mm -hmm. And I just got dissatisfied with that after a while. It wasn't it wasn't a big enough trophy anymore for me to get my ego stro stroked mm -hmm. because I cited a particular author at a particular moment mm -hmm. uh, when I knew we all would be leaving from that conversation back into the same uh, uh, material conditions that had brought us into the room in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. And I would say the same thing even for preachers, like mm -hmm. even for preaching. I, I can get bored with preaching very fast. Mm -hmm. I see preaching as an organizing tool. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, if it's not inviting some behavior, if the sermon doesn't have some behavioral purpose beyond that moment that impacts my day-to-day -day life, what are you really saying? Mm -hmm. And so for preachers that just you know, put words together that sound eloquent mm -hmm. and get, you know, people are shouting and clapping and sure that can have some individual purpose. Um, but beyond that individual kind of uh, therapeutic moment of praise and worship, what does it mean we if we pray the benediction and send folks right back into the same stuff that had them crying and shouting in this congregation in the first place? Mm -hmm. So once once that ran its course for me mm -hmm. um, in terms of me being satisfied with just the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Then I started to really think, okay, all right, you know, how can we move beyond? I don't want to say beyond. How can we couple our analysis and our research and our study with the actual practice of what it is that we're talking about mm -hmm. so that the practice more, better informs the study and mm -hmm. the study further informs more practice. Mm -hmm. And so it really, a praxis, mm -hmm. is, you know, a, you know, a deeper praxis. And so that is what, you know, um, led me to a part of what led me to thinking about systematizing. Another part of it was just my recognition that, you know, as we get older, you know, it's like, yo, you ain't going to be here forever. And as invisible as I felt in earlier stages and seasons of life, I don't feel that level of invis invisibility anymore. I've had a lot of family die, a lot of friends pass. I've mm -hmm. seen more life. I got more season. My body feels different. My mind feels, my energy, my time, my attention feels mm -hmm. different. And so a kind of organizing or activism that's propped up on personal charisma also became uh, kind of just unfulfilling because like, yo, you tripping. Mm -hmm. If you think your charisma, your personality mm -hmm. uh, alone, your energy alone is enough. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, 
Like the uh, generations of black folk just been waiting for you to get here. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. And man, it's so humbling when I consider that, and then consider all of the brilliant and dynamic Africans that came before us. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me that all these other Africans didn't have what right. they bought. Right, had. exactly. You know, what, what he forgot. <laughs> right. Like, yo, you know, calm down. So it's a whole lot of humility that came along the way. And so once mm. all that came together, I started to think more about, all right, I can, how can I be a part of something that will live beyond my time here? Mm-hmm. And then looking at where I'm planted, looking at where I'm situated, I'm in the black church mm-hmm. that existed before I was born, long before. Mm-hmm. And my strongest hunch is it will exist long after. And so when I think about the ways that black folk have created their own systems. The black church is one of those systems Mm -hmm. that I would offer up to anybody, no matter what their religious or spiritual background. Mm -hmm. If you analyze just components of a system, just by definition, Mm -hmm. and then you look at the black church, it's a system Mm -hmm. that from the late 1700s to present day, black folk have been in the driver's seat, had controlling interest over the church. Is that outside influence? Sure, of mm-hmm. course. That's no, no debate at all. But in terms of in terms of who shows up every week to sit in the chair, in terms of who makes the decisions around buying land or building, I mean, think about all the critique the black church has gotten over the years, rightfully so, for building bigger buildings. Mm-hmm. That critique is very valid. And don't lose sight. Wait, they building buildings? Mm-hmm. They doing something. They doing something. <laughs> they doing something. Mm-hmm. And not only did I recognize that, but I started to see a pattern where other uh, uh, black scholars recognized the same, and they've been recognized. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just took me a minute to get to a point of what to observe and to honor what they've been recognized. Mm-hmm. So, in so when I read a blueprint for Black Power, that's right. That that, that Dr. Amos Wilson, he has chapter. He has a chapter on the Black, black Church. Church. Yep. Yeah. Now, I didn't learn about Amos Wilson growing up in Sunday school, and I never heard him stand up and give a testimony about the goodness of God. But this man, who I have studied and read and watched so many videos about on every other thing, Mm -hmm. and have given it an audience and given it credence because he said it, now I go back to that book and I say, wait! Whole chapter. There's a whole chapter on the black church Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, looking at Carter G. Woodson's writing about the black mm-hmm, church, mm-hmm. looking at W.E.B. Du Bois writing about the black, like it has been consistent mm-hmm. that looking at Jessica Gordon Nimhart's That's work, right. Collective Courage, she writes extensively throughout the book mm-hmm. about black churches being involved in the establishment of co-ops and mutual aid societies and the like. Mm-hmm. So looking at that pattern across a wide spectrum of different scholars mm-hmm. from, I mean, from from long ago to more current times. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, whoo, okay. I'm situated right inside of this system, this environment that all of these scholars, ancestors, and elders have long been saying, if it's going to happen, you got to look at this space right here. Mm -hmm. Why? Land, buildings, kitchens, vans, (laughs) uh, collective working responsibility, cooperative economics and practice, Mm -hmm. and some people, particularly for those who may not be, you know, who may have, who may take great issue with Christianity, great issue with the church for all of their right reasons. Um, you don't see a red, black, and green uh, flag waving at the front door. Mm-hmm. The temptation <laughs> is to write it off. Ah, mm-hmm. man, right. yes. Yeah. They, but uh, but you can miss you can miss the practice the RBG of the practice. The is. very practices <laughs> of the RBG. And sometimes, and some might get mad at me here, sometimes the practice of the RBG principles are more potent inside a church that does not publicly claim any of those uh, the names that we lift up or the terms that we lift up more so than the quote-unquote conscious community. There it is. Which can quote all day long <laughs> But point to their buildings. Exactly. Point to their land. <laughs> point to the ways in which they've organized their resources and assets to engage the material conditions of black people. Mm-hmm. And a, a brother, a shared brother of ours, brother Jabari and I, we had this conversation a lot. And he agrees. I mean, and you know, mm-hmm. he's an OG in general in That's Baltimore right. Right. at this point when it comes to being in the conscious community. And he gives, he lodges that same critique. Yep. 
that you can't point to anything mm -hmm. that says the conscious community organizing came together and did such and such and so and so. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I pray that, you know, and, and that's not a community that I see myself outside of necessarily. Uh, but so I pray that my words provoke and catalyze some concrete action mm -hmm. in the conscious community, even if it means coming alongside black churches mm -hmm. that can teach something about how do you get people to put their money together. Mm -hmm. Because with Jabari, and I ain't trying to put all the apologies like that, <laughs> but you know, when Jabari would be leading the offering, we were calling church offering. Offering, yeah. Doing, doing the scholars. When the mm -hmm. scholars the reality come. speaks joints. Right, yep. right. Doing the reality speaks conversations, right? Mm -hmm. They bring the baskets out. They got to raise money. Mm -hmm. That scholar had to take a plane to get here. That scholar exactly. got a hotel room. Mm -hmm. They got to be paid for. And Jabari's trying to raise money. I've seen that brother struggle to raise $100 in a room of three, four, five hundred people. And that thing, I mean, upsets me. Yeah, yeah. I will stand up on Sunday in a crowd that's a fraction in terms of the number of people, a fraction of the number compared to the Reality Speaks lectures. Mm -hmm. And we raise thousands of dollars every single Sunday mm -hmm. with a fraction yep. by people who have embraced principles to the degree and depth of their wallets, mm -hmm. not just their minds. Absolutely. So I, I know that's a long, long but, response. But, but, that's, <laughs> but that's good. And that, this is a part of why I wanted to have this conversation, mm -hmm. because I think there's some folks for whom I think we're at a moment now where social justice is mainstream. Mm -hmm. And so you have a lot of people who are able to stand up and proclaim about issues of racial justice and and beyond just like the personality of it. And that's that's like inevitable. Right. Beyond like the personality of it, like really being able to establish approaches to revolutionary activity sure. in a way that actually impacts the material conditions of our people and being able to make assessments. Sure. And what you've offered, I think, is an important assessment mm -hmm. for our community to hear, listen to and heed. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think so one of the places where I think what you've laid out actually informs people's approach. So, you know, there are a lot of organizations that are um, C3 organizations relying on philanthropy and other kinds of benevolence. And one of the things I think when I think about the Black Church Food Security Network, the importance of a sustainable, um, you know, sovereign food environment for black people. And, and I think sometimes, so I remember dur early during the pandemic, there was a lot of people that lost their jobs. There was a lot of need for food. And I know, you know, in Baltimore City, and I'm sure this was the case in places around the country where there was a lot of charity giving away food. Sure. And there was a lot of desire for money to be, to be spent there, yeah. right? In fact, you know, a project that LBS works on, the Baltimore City Children and Youth Fund actually gave like $6 million to mm -hmm. efforts around food, you know, and but but it was money that and now, you know, this was the city kind of coming to the youth fund for that. But I remember and even some of the board transition board members of the youth fund were thinking like, you know, we're going to give away all this food. But that but that may impact negatively the community's ability to fulfill its own food needs in the long term. Mm -hmm. And that was something that we were clear about, sure. but in terms of conversations with like other public officials and just people in general, it was a difficult concept for people to get why it would be bad mm -hmm. to continue to invest in that mm -hmm. food charity mm -hmm. in that way, even though the short term need is there. Mm -hmm. So say say something about you know this kind of sovereignty versus charity. Say something about like what I just laid out, like because I know we've talked about the importance of that. Like how would you help people to understand the the importance? of investing in that sovereign, self-sustaining food security system um, and help people to understand why, like, the negative impact mm -hmm. of that level of reliance on charity, even for those short-term needs. Sure. So one thing I would say is most people don't know and have not studied the food system, how it works currently. Mm -hmm. And when you don't know how it works currently, like, if, if, all, if your primary engagement with the food system is walking into a grocery store, and that really hits the limit of where, you know, where your engagement is. There's a whole lot that goes on behind the curtain mm. that people don't know about. And because there's an ignorance about what goes on behind the curtain, then your assessment or analysis around what, what is or is not happening in this system can be very limited and limiting. Mm -hmm. And so it is interesting, you know, when you point back to that time period early on in the pandemic, um, you know, what we knew from the gate was that there would be a strong impulse to do a lot of food stuff. Mm -hmm. And we would have to, as an organization, resist it. 
We would have to resist it. We made a choice. People were calling us, hey, can you can we can you come and do this, that, and other? No, we can't. Uh, because of, of part of what you laid out, and also because of our knowledge of the ways in which the current food system and current and I'm talking about the corporate food system, mm-hmm. to be most precise. The corporate food system um, uh, works to ensure that uh, they maintain power over the communities, even in the name of doing good for that community. Mm-hmm. It's about power at the end of the day. It's power, right? And so when corporations are setting up distributions, the questions we, I'm talking about food distributions of local communities. Mm-hmm. The questions that are not asked is, where did you get this food from? Mm-hmm. Who did you pay? To get that food. Because even if it goes for free to somebody in the neighborhood. Somebody paid for it. Somebody paid for it. Mm -hmm. So we don't ask questions like, who paid for this food? How much did you pay? Uh, Who did you pay for it? How did it get here? How long was it stored before it was distributed? Mm. Who owns the cold storage that stored it before you went in to put it in that pretty box? Mm. Who paid for that box? (laughs) <laughs> go, go right on that. Mm-hmm. And once you look, pull that curtain back, and once you analyze more of that, what you'll realize, realize is that the black community is nowhere or on a very marginal level in all of those different spaces. Mm. I'm talking about transportation, distribution, processing, storage. This, this, the money, this is where the money is moving and flowing. And our community is not present there. But then, watch this, we'll turn around with a current corporate food system where black people do not have a controlling state mm-hmm. and do not have a majority voice in that system, we still will turn right around and then blame people for the health challenges that they have. Mm. Oh man, that yeah, diabetes dude. in your community is crazy. Mm-hmm. Y'all need to eat better. Mm-hmm. Oh man, cholesterol, mm-hmm. oh COPD, you got heart disease, generation after generation, y'all gotta eat better. How am I gonna eat better when I don't control the corner store, the grocery store, the transportation, the distribution? And so I often talk about how you know, people want to talk about black people getting a handle on their health. We cannot get a handle on our health until we have power over our plate. And until you have power over your plate, until you can dictate and determine what the menu looks like, how it gets mm-hmm. here, when it arrives, who drove it over here, how long it's going to stay here, and what else you're going to get. Until we can answer those questions from a position of power, then we are at the mercy of a corporate food system in the context of a country that has long uh, uh, felt in uh, uh, been satisfied with the death, suffering, and murder of black people. You mm-hmm. cannot trust mm-hmm. this, con- this country and the food system that it props up to maintain or invite our greatest health. It, it, is, it is blasphemy to, mm-hmm. to expect <laughs> Particularly last summer when everybody's marching around for all the various egregious acts of continued state violence against black people. To have such articulate analysis around uh, law enforcement, around the injustice uh, system, to have such an articulate analysis about the ways in which black people are oppressed by these systems Mm -hmm. and then be mute and silent on other systems that come closer to what most black people feel every single day. That's right. Because... Breakfast, lunch, and dinner hits quicker and faster mm-hmm. than the other things that might come, you know, get us charged up to head out to the streets. Mm-hmm. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you are silent, if your politics is silent on breakfast, lunch, and dinner, then you also are silent on a majority concern of most households, black or whatever else in the country or in this world. Mm-hmm. How does your revolutionary politic assess, analyze, and articulate? what liberation looks like for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm. How how does your revolutionary politic uh, assess, articulate, and activate uh, around child care? Mm -hmm. Come on, come closer. Bring bring it down. (laughs) Bring it down. And I'm talking to my younger self. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to my younger self as well. Mm -hmm. Because I would have high and lofty visions Mm -hmm. of what we're going to do by next Friday. (laughs) But overlook the stuff that black folk are dealing with every single day. Mm-hmm. How am I going to get to work? How am I going to eat? Who going to watch these children? Mm-hmm. That's got, and that's what I love about even when I look at how uh, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense really critiqued themselves mm-hmm. and um, embraced, added on to, refined, um, and, and, and built upon you know their biggest, highest revolutionary ideals, mm-hmm. but then embraced 
programs pending revolution. Mm -hmm. That's right. right. We're still going there. Yep. But we recognize that we won't get there if we don't show up to where people are today and right now. And not just where people are, but where we are too. Mm -hmm. But where we are too. Mm -hmm. Because we got to eat. We need housing. Mm -hmm. We need to get from point A to point B safely. It's all the kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And so that's what I would say um, around kind of addressing the current corporate food system. Mm -hmm. Study it. Study it. Mm -hmm. Learn how it works. Analyze it. Down to the point, again, to trucking. Like, please analyze trucking. Please analyze uh, supply chains. Mm -hmm. Please pay attention when they talk about the ports over in the the west, west coast of this country being so backed up that trucks can't get stuff from California over to the rest of the country. Please pay attention. Don't change the channel Mm -hmm. because what you are seeing with that corporate supply chain and that corporate food system is how it operates. But also you'll see how we are not, I mean, not even involved in the conversations, not Mm -hmm. at all, Mm -hmm. but also where where I get excited, you'll see opportunities to engage. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait. Y'all trucks ain't moving to my neighborhood. Your trucks ain't coming over here. Mm-hmm. All right, wait a minute, back, back, mm-hmm. <laughs> because that might be an opening right there for us to do it. Come on, mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. If if Biden gets on the, on television and says <laughs> we have a problem <laughs> with right. getting trucks, like they confessing, like the system mm-hmm. is confessing, hey, we got a major problem here. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you got a problem. I'm sorry to hear that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in the midst of your problem, I'm going to make it a solution for my community. We're mm-hmm. going to bust up right in that area, right there. Mm-hmm. So with respect to the pandemic, we did the same thing. It was mm-hmm. like, listen, we're not going to um, we're not gonna jump on the bandwagon y'all put together and try to slap our name on top of what you're doing mm-hmm. to perpetuate you know, right. giving away free food in the immediate sense. We're going to be hungry today. We're going to be hungry tomorrow, too. Mm-hmm. And what I know is when your grant runs out, what I know is when the cameras leave and the moment passes, mm-hmm. you're going to go about your business. Which is what happened. Which is what happened. Mm-hmm. Which is what happened. <laughs> And so, yeah, we recognize that it's more, you know, it, it's more important for us to systematize. How do we do it? Figure it out. How do we figure it out? And no, we ain't get six million. We mm-hmm. ain't get the six million. Mm-hmm. But you know what? What I've learned in, in my couple days kind of doing this stuff is if you can figure out how to do it broke, figure out how to do it broke. If you can figure that out, do it broke. Mm-hmm. Once you get that. Oh man, mm-hmm. it, it, it helps to put you in the, in the power seat now mm-hmm. because you can walk away. You can walk away, mm-hmm. and that's what we have done over and over and go as an organization. Mm-hmm. We've we've been able to say thanks but no thanks mm-hmm. multiple times to money that a younger me might say, "What in the world are you doing? <laughs> Why you turn that money down? Mm-hmm. We could have got in." Da 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 da. But then I realized. <laughs> That ain't no real money. That's the, right. That right. That's only real money to us because we ain't got it. Right. <laughs> like, exactly somebody right. say, we got $30,000. <laughs> that ain't no money. Right. <laughs> and especially when you, again, going back to analyzing the corporate food system, $30,000 ain't nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's almost an insult. It's an insult. It's an insult. Right. Because I know the white boys and the white women who lead their organization, they ain't getting $30,000. Right. Right. They're getting bigger money. Mm-hmm. And then they expect us to do, as a black-led organization, grassroots organization, they expect us to work miracles for $30,000 mm-hmm. when, you know, they spend more on paper for their office yeah. or toilet paper for their bathrooms mm-hmm. and then want me to write a report <laughs> over what I did with their $30,000. Mm-hmm. Man, you don't get up my face, man. Stop playing. Like I said, I know how this blows. Y'all, y'all, y'all playing. So that that's why the study is important. That's why it's important to resist the impulse of us just jumping in and help people for the sake of helping people. But then also, too, we also have to be thoughtful about what does it mean to find moments like last year and um, find that the pending revolution steps mm-hmm. for those kind of moments. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's some of the things that we did. Oh, Ren Brown, we'd love for the Black Church Foods Food Network to do such, such, so and so. And we had this funding to do such, 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 such. Okay, all right. Here, pay this farmer right here. Mm. Pay this farmer. This is our farmer, black farmer in Virginia. Uh, he needs cold storage for his farm. If you pay for cold storage for his farm, 
we'll be in a better position to make sure that we continue to get food moving. So mm. when you get investments in infrastructure. The infrastructure. So we were steering money toward, you know, you got money to spend, you feel bad. Oh, you read, you read, you read Miriam Kaba, <laughs> you know, abolition. Oh, I got you. I got you. <laughs> Steal your money. That's right. Into investing in the infrastructure of black farmers and black churches. Do you know, Davon, we had a black church last year that built a cold storage unit inside that church. Wow. I've never seen it. I got so excited. Never seen it for my life that this pastor and this church said, let's put cold storage inside of If you got cold storage inside of a black church, mm. for me, it felt like an underground railroad kind of moment. Wow. Because now, again, going back to this network system, now you can start to map, okay, where the cold storage churches, mm. where the land churches, you know, with the production churches, because they got a lot of land. You know, then now it starts coming together more because you've invested in infrastructure. And when black churches start investing in infrastructure around a food system, when black churches start reimagining their church bus and say, hmm, if we put a, uh, a little cooler on the back of this church bus, we can go pick up the food ourselves from this black farmer right here. And the deacon who drives the bus, we'll pay him some money to drive back and forth. See, now you got your cold storage and now you got the, the kind of uh, organic kind of trucking lines. Mm -hmm. We already drive these church buses back and forth. Mm -hmm. We already do it. Our churches already meet together for the concert or the Christmas play or the revival or the Good Friday. We already are used to working together in other ways. And so what we do now is say, mm -hmm. you already know them down the street. Right. Let's work together on this right here and just see what can happen. And here's the thing that I pray and I get some evidence that's already happening, but I pray it even takes even greater root, uh, even and especially when I'm gone from here. The thought begins to bubble up in people's minds. Well, if we can feed ourselves by connecting the dots of the land we already own, the churches we already have, and maximizing this uh, this buffer that we have, it's a buffer. We're not completely, no black church is completely separated from the same dynamics of the white power structure like everybody mm. else is. Mm -hmm. But there's a little bit of a buffer. Why? Because it's one of the spaces and places where white folks come walk in and they do not assume dominance and they do not assume leadership. Mm. It's one of those spaces where they walk in and they know they out. Mm. And when they walk in and every black head looking over like that, mm. it's like, it's like every black head in the congregation look and look at it. It's like, just to let you know, <laughs> it's our space. Right. We run this here. Mm. And you can come in, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but you ain't running nothing. So mm. it's the one it's one of those spaces where um, there's a greater sense amongst black people that we are in control of this. Mm-hmm. And mm -hmm. we'll be insulted if white folks, if, uh, you know, there are exceptions, of course, mm -hmm. but insulted if white folks walk in and try to dominate. White mm -hmm. people even think they can dominate. They don't even mm -hmm. know what a black church is. Mm -hmm. They still don't know what it is. <laughs> and I love it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Let's stay outside of the purview of your imagination. Mm -hmm. Just we some blob over there. Just some some murky blob. We don't know what to find. Perfect. Good. With that in mind, then, when black people see that we can start to feed ourselves. The next thought coming down the pipe is, if we can feed ourselves, what else can we do? That's right. Now, that's, that's right. going to be, hopefully, beyond my lifetime. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to do everything I can to show a model, not the, a model around food, black food sovereignty built on um, the long tradition. I'm working on, I'm trying to be like you, Dave. I'm going to be an author one day. Uh-oh. So, I'm going to be an author like Dave. Dave, I said, man, I, can, I think I can do it too. I'm going to try to do it. So I'm working on my book that chronicles from the late 1800s to present day, mm -hmm. the long tradition of the relationship between black churches and black farming. Mm -hmm. Nick, now, can you just, yeah. and, and kind of the last piece we'll talk, sure, touch sure. on, um, is that very piece. Okay. You mentioned the kind of the long history of the black church and farmers. So it's like, mm -hmm. you know, the black uh, farmers alliance from the, you know, late, you know, mid, late, you know, 19th century. Baltimore has some really, you know, I think important history around, um, you know, black church leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, particularly, I mean, I would argue my reading of that history is that that's a period of time where you see black folks operating in the struggle for liberation from a place of sovereignty, self-determination, yeah. which and I think much of that has been has been undermined. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I think we're in a moment now where there's a much more kind of integration that's bent Absolutely. to the kinds of stuff that's more mainstream. Yeah. If you could talk just, you know, like you said, you're working on a book. So sure. I imagine if you could talk just a little bit about some historical examples of that, just historical examples of, you know, black faith leaders from that position of sovereignty uh, and, and how it organized from that perspective that empties into like all the work that you were just talking about. Sure. So I, I would start by saying that, you know, absolutely. Uh, I agree with you that um, black preachers and, and African-American Christians in the late 1800s in particular, um, they had no misunderstanding about what time it was when, when, it, came, when it came to nation building. Mm-hmm. That was the default. It was default. You, when you're coming out of Civil War era and you have relatives or you yourself have grown up under chattel slavery in this country, they understood. There was a wide understanding. In fact, many of the Baptist associations, uh, many of the African uh, Methodist Episcopal um, um, organizations and associations, they they had a I mean a, a steep incline and and great um, heyday with respect to their organizing in the late 1800s mm-hmm. and having that position and posture of faith connected with that politic of nation building. Mm. helped to set a wonderful foundation for so many of the organizations that we find today. I mean, mm. when you think about universities, HBCUs that are standing mm-hmm. today, mm. a lot of them are standing today because black people, black Christians of the late 1800s organized themselves, put their resources together and said, we need something of our own. I mourn, I mourn the confusion we have today about the realities around, um, or, or I mourn, the levels of um, embrace of the integrationist approach. Mm-hmm. I, I wish we could. I wish we could put it on the jury. I mean, on a witness stand and interrogate it in more honest dialogue. Particularly when we have those in our families and those in our community who can, who are still alive, and even through their memories can do a kind of pre and post or before and after. Mm-hmm. Let's say, for instance, Brown v. Board of Education. Mm-hmm. I got people in my church that talk glowingly about education prior to Brown right. v. Board and um, lament all that happened post-Brown v. Board. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like they are they are living epistles, as the Bible says, or walking libraries mm-hmm. of people who have like lived experience and memories about before and after. And so when I look at the histories, when I read the writings, when I see the, the ministries, when I see the preachers mm-hmm. from the late 1800s, early 1900s, I'm inspired because, mm-hmm. um, you know, these were preachers and ministries that, you know, a lot of folks don't know about. Mm-hmm. And it's manufactured ignorance. There's a reason you don't know about them. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know. We don't know about people like Father Divine and Mother Divine and Peace Mission Movement. Mm-hmm. Um, through the lenses of evangelicalism, we get hung up, uh, not only hung up, but we get uh, a lot of. Black Christians get turned away from Father Divine because he was saying he was God. Mm-hmm. A black mm-hmm. man in the early 1900s was walking around telling telling white folk and black folk, mm-hmm. "I'm God." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you know, it, it was uh, that's something particularly for those who were shaped by evangelicalism would be such a turnoff that it's like throw that throw him away and everything he stood for. Mm-hmm. But when you do a deeper a deeper dive into his ministry, uh, he had a regional food system that connected his uh, religious practice and the religious practice of the communities of faith that he led with farms. Like they bought farmland in the rural areas and they trucked the produce from their farms to their churches in the city. Mm. They connected urban and rural. That's just one example of many. Wow. Right? And then also too, you look at I look at examples like even people talk about 40 acres and a mule. Where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? Mm-hmm. I tell you where it came from. Uh, black Christian preachers mm-hmm. met with General Sherman, mm-hmm. and General Sherman, and this is this is uh, this is post Civil War, y'all. Mm-hmm. Anybody, any, you know, want to look up the the uh, information um, that you know they were going around South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Northern Florida, and Georgia as well, and all of these black folk that were enslaved on plantations. Um, were quote unquote liberated when the Union armies came through. Mm-hmm. General Sherman and these armies had to they had to figure something out. 
all these free black people, then what we gonna do? Mm. They had a meeting with about 20 black Christian preachers. Mm. And they asked those black Christian preachers, what do y'all need to stand up for yourselves, do your own thing and take care of yourselves? And these 20 black Christian preachers said, we need land. Mm -hmm. 40 acres and a mule came out of the mouths of black Christian preachers who did not separate and disassociate freedom and liberation from land ownership and food sovereignty. Mm. They connected. It was a part of their faith practice to understand the ways that came together. Mm. And when they were asked whether or not they wanted to live with white folks or have their own separate communities, 19 out of the 20 said, we want to live by ourselves. Mm -hmm. We do not want to live with white people. Mm -hmm. Mm. That was an amazing. Once mm. I pulled back the the, the fine the, the footnotes of that story, mm. it really helped to launch me on this piece around the history and the writing, mm. because we need a reintroduction to a black Christianity that embraces land and food sovereignty and does not see it as anathema to our Christian faith mm. practice. Mm. You getting into it? Yeah, <laughs> because I into really it. think it's yeah. a part. No, that's real though. It's a part. It's a part of a a map that we will need as mm -hmm. a community. We need it, mm -hmm. and this map will be useful as we if we have Sankofa moments and go back, and then analyze, reflect, meditate on what it might make might mean today. It will help lead us forward and we will need it because climate change is real. Mm -hmm. Vice President Kamala Harris said a couple months back, she said the wars of the near future will be over water because of climate change. Now we know, you know, most wars are about land or water or, you mm -hmm. know, no matter what they might slap on the front of it. But the fact that the sitting vice president said, we're about to have wars around water uh, should be it was an eye opener for me, it, because it was like oh okay great I already thought it but I'm like mm -hmm. okay great mm -hmm. and you look at the science and the data around how the how climate change is going is already impacting agriculture, so the temperature rising is impacting the the condition of soil and mm -hmm. impacting the ability to grow certain things right and so it's already happening our Gullah Geechee cousins mm -hmm. family, that's right the waters are already rising. They're losing land as we speak. And so when I look at climate uh, change, listen, and, and let me just say, there's no amount of recycling at your house that's going to address. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. it's, so, it's so crazy. Mm -hmm. You've got these multinational corporations that are dumping all manner of crud in the waterways of the world or polluting at a rate that me and you could never ever do in 10 lifetimes. But we're looking at us like, you gotta recycle that, mm -hmm. you know, that bottle or stop using plastic bags. Mm -hmm. Our plastic bags are under the sink where they always be. Yeah. That ain't us. <laughs> right. That ain't us. <laughs> so, you know, climate change is something. You know, we'd be foolish to believe that uh, state-sponsored violence against black people is going to change, is going to go away just overnight mm. somewhere. Right. That's, that's going to be. So all these things are going to continue to be challenges. And I'm, I feel a particular urgency because in, our, in black church spaces, <clears throat> again, I'm seeing the passing away of a generation that remembers mm, that's it. what it was like when we ran our own stuff. Even if they don't articulate through black power language mm -hmm. the same way that some younger activists might do today. Mm -hmm. They can tell you stories mm -hmm. of when we all live together. When you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not I'm not trying to romanticize it. Right. I, I want to be careful not to act like, you know, oh, you know, that was the perfect, you know, no, 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 mm -hmm. no. It had his own challenges right. and issues. But it's lessons to learn. Lessons and we gotta to learn. learn them. And here's my concern, Davon. Those elders, when they pass off. And those that follow that don't have a lived experience, they don't have a point of reference beyond the book. Mm. It's it's going to invite some turbulence if we don't sit with those elders now, if we don't do that research now, if we don't do even what you're doing even now. Mm -hmm. hey, let's talk about this. Let's make space for it. Let's mm -hmm. record it. Let's mm -hmm. put it out there. Mm -hmm. It needs to happen now um, so that we are ready and prepared for the next... They're talking about metaverse, alternative reality. Mm -hmm. So now, now creating other forms of reality 
so black people can now you can get oppressed in the real world <laughs> and the other world. Come on, the other world too. And so I see people jumping on the train. Oh yes, you know black folks saying, "Oh, let's go in for the metaverse." Go into art. Do you understand that anything born from the psyche of the uh, Yurugu, anything mm, born from the right. psyche of this mentality is going to prioritize making space for subjugation right. and keeping black people, whether it's the alternative reality, the virtual world, whether it's robots you have in your house, mm -hmm. it all becomes, and I ain't trying to sound our robot like Will Smith, but I am <laughs> trying to say that there's some analog organizing we have to do around our basic human rights of food, housing, water, defense, mm -hmm. transportation, and supply chains. Mm -hmm. We need to have a greater rate, we have to, have to have a greater level of agency, a higher controlling interest, majority stake in the systems that we need today, and the ones that we know our grandchildren, our descendants, will need coming after us. And there's some history from the late 1800s That's right. into mid 20th century that can be so helpful and instructive as we try to think about and freedom dream in those ways. Right. Appreciate that. So um, just want to say, um, you know, for people who are going to watch, tell people how to support Black Church Food Security Network. You know, tell them how they can do to be supportive. Sure, sure. Follow us on uh, IG, Twitter, Facebook, all the things, Black Church FSN. You can go to our website, Black Church uh, foodsecurity.net and I want to invite everybody watching this to go back to church. Go 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 to church even just to check out some of the stuff I said today. It's like, I don't know if they're doing that. Go to church, see for yourself. Mm -hmm. Analyze, sit back, take notes, be an organizer, observe, and just put some notes together and also explore ways that you can be in relationship with the black church that your grandmama goes to. Mm. or your auntie, or your uncle. Um, those relationships are necessary. I forgot, it might have been Dr. Greg Carr, somebody who talked about <clears throat> how a relationship is the primary axiom of, of knowing and connecting or something, That's right. for something along mm -hmm. those lines. Yep. And so even if, all, if something of what I said resonates with anybody, with particularly with respect to the black church, land, commercial kitchens, all this stuff that goes underutilized Monday through Saturday that mm. could be so useful for any range of things, whether it's food or something else. If any of that resonates with you, um, one, awesome. Two, look at ways to start establishing relationships with the people who are currently in charge of that stuff mm -hmm. in, your, in your neighborhood. Relationships, because if ain't no relationship, I think it was Pastor P.M. Smith that said, if you ain't got a relationship, you ain't got nothing. Mm -hmm. Especially for us, it's relationship. Mm. And so, and you won't be able to walk in and say, Heba Brown told me to tell you. Nah. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> I got that much juice. You got to go in for yourself That's and right. support this Sunday school program. Chip in for the community outreach. Whatever parts of the church that you can get down with, get down with that. Mm -hmm. Support that. Get a track record. Get some credit history on the stuff you can get down with. And I believe that it will open the door for opportunity to do some dreaming together mm -hmm. and for the church to show up and support something that you might be doing, mm -hmm. but it's not going to happen overnight. So you should be getting started now. That's right. All right. Appreciate you. Thank you That's the search of black power. Um, uh, as always, peace. And yeah, we'll see you next time.